Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. We have a very special guest today, a three-time Bram Stoker Award-winning author. Yes, three times uh, Sarah Langan has won the Bram Stoker Award, and she has a new novel called Good Neighbors, which I admit is the first of her work that I've read and it blew me away, so I was really excited when she uh, agreed to come on and talk about Good Neighbors, which is going to be our primary focus, but we're going we're gonna to get you caught up on who Sarah is and how she got to this point. Um, Sarah, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. David, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for reading the book, and this is a treat, so... Yeah, um, I, I'm really interested in where... Uh, you know, I have to ask everybody, and I know I, I've had Norman Spinrad told me it was a stupid question when I asked him, uh, but how did you get into genre fiction and to writing specifically? Because I feel like we always have to have that kind of baseline first. Um, I I don't think I ever saw it as genre. You know, it was just a story I wanted to tell. And the stories that I loved, I mean, even the classics, a lot of them are horror or, or genre. Um, even like, I loved Edith Wharton and Ethan Frome is like a soapy political, I don't know. I would not like these, the, what's considered traditional literary is kind of boring to me. So I liked having plots and that was interesting, but I don't know what got me into genre, like science fiction, horror, fantasy, I think I just loved it as a kid. And I think that the things I'm interested in, the sort of moral complexities of modern life um, are best told with metaphor. Um, so, so that's what I was always drawn to. Did you have any early authors that were your, your touchstones or the ones that really gravitated you to the idea of storytelling itself? Oh, um, so I, you know, as, as a kid, I think the first books that I really loved were called, um, but uh, the Dory books and they were about Dory, the witch, and she grew up in a coven and she was raised by her mother, the witch. And, uh, my mom started reading them to me. And then they were the first books that I could read in like kindergarten and first grade. And I bought them for my daughters and they're very, um, they're great. And then, you know, as, as sort of the, always the stock answer is like, yeah, I read Stephen King. I read John Saul. I read Dean Koontz. Then I read Dance Macabre. So I read Shirley Jackson and all of those fun, fun, uh, genre touchstones. Uh, I think, I think adolescence is the best time to read those stories because they really kick into your sense of injustice and they just take hold. And uh, I'm so glad that I had that instead of some kind of like pseudo romance story that made me feel bad about myself. Like <laughs> instead I got to, I got to be exposed to stuff about the world that made me feel like I had power and agency and control and I could, I could affect change. 
which, you know, the Twilight Zone, which we were talking about, um, all of those stories are so much about looking at the world around you and with a new lens and trying to make things better and seeing what's wrong. And you grew up in Long Island, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm always interested, too, in what the geography of the places that people grew up in and and, and how that they feel like that this the communities that they grew grew up in affected them as writers and kind of helped, you know, mold the clay. Um, so my town was called Garden City. It's where uh, Good Neighbors is sort of very, very loosely based on which is the town there is also called Garden City. And the town um, was very old fashioned. Uh, It was very much uh, like a throwback where a lot of moms stayed home and raised kids. And a lot of the dads worked and they commuted on a train and watching Mad Men, it kind of felt like one of those towns, except it was the eighties. It wasn't the sixties. So there was something very strange about it. (laughs) <laughs> well, it was also like nice and safe and uh, it was also very homogenous and it was oddly, um, it was racist uh, and it was classist as, as suburban places can be, you know, they were sort of engineered to keep people out, not to keep people in. And I think there's something uh, interesting about that, that. Um, so if Good Neighbors was influenced by this, how what, did um, did your hometown make it into any of your earlier works? Um, no, no. So Good Neighbors is the first time, huh? Okay. Well, um, yeah, it seems like it's, uh, well, yeah, it's definitely a fertile ground for social commentary, and we'll get more into uh, Good Neighbors as it comes, but you uh, sold your first story while in college. Um, did you... Uh, how long did, did you have the dream of being a writer before you sold that first story or, or, or did this story just kind of happen first? Oh, I decided I wanted to be a writer when I was four and uh, I never changed my mind. Early, very yeah. early. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could just read. And I was like, this is it. I'm going to write these words that I'm reading. So, but the, the road to get there um, was long. I, always wanted to do it. Uh, but I think I just was so afraid I wouldn't be good at it, that I didn't try it. It was bizarre. So I read constantly, but I was so afraid of like, I, I know so many people who wrote novels in high school and stuff and I just, no way. Um, but I went to college specifically for creative writing and I, and I went to a college that had a major in creative writing back when that didn't happen. And, uh, that was when I first started writing and I knew I was like, yep, turns out I do. I'm pretty good. And <laughs> I do like it. <laughs> and I never stopped. I mean, I know some people, but I worked two hours a day from then on mm-hmm. at least, but at minimum, even no matter what day job was, whatever was going on. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, was the keeper your first novel or first attempt at a novel, or did you have a few trunk ones before you got to that one? I think I wrote a short novel in college uh, as my thesis. Um, And then The Keeper, as soon as I started grad school, was my first novel. Mm -hmm. And that took, um, I started it when I was 21, and I sold it when I was 30. Mm -hmm. A long time. Yeah. 
but uh, it was a, an immediate success. I remember the buzz about it uh, w- when it came out. And of course, um, you know, was immediately in conversation with the Stoker Awards. And I believe you won with, with The Keeper. Was that for best first novel or just novel overall? Um, I don't think I did win. Oh, I you were just nominated? I thought you was won. was nominated. Okay, yeah. no, it was your second novel that you won for, right? That was, yeah, for best novel. Um, and then I won one for a short story. And then Audrey's Door, my third novel, won another Stoker. Right. Keeper, you won three years in a row, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah, it was amazing. It was great. <laughs> so tell me about The Keeper and where that came from. And, you know, the first novel is always a really important one. Um, and it's one that you have to really believe in and and um, and know that, that that's one you're going to stick your neck out with. Uh so, so where did the keeper come from? Um, I think I just have always had a sense, a really strong sense of injustice. And so that story is very much about injustice and it's about the harm of, of capitalism and patriarchy only told as a ghost story and, and told about this, this main character, Susan Marley, who's a takeoff on, you know, a Christmas Carol. Um, sort of haunting people with the complicit pact they've made to um, to be a part of this society that doesn't support people um, who tend to fall through the cracks and the way that it legitimizes um, people in authority, whether they deserve that authority or not. And so the premise is it's a dying paper mill town in Maine that and it it's set over a period of I think a week, and it's raining the whole time, and um, all the things that have been buried come up in the flood, and this woman has died and she's resurrected. So it's a little bit of you know I'm Catholic, so like every I don't know what it is. Like I was raised Catholic, I'm like an atheist now, but every I'm like it's like something so deeply Catholic about everything I do that like, I'm like, of course my books sell in Italy. Like, <laughs> you know, they always sell in the Catholic countries or Spain. They're like, we love you. And I'm like, there's something weird about us. Like, <laughs> like I'm writing some secret Catholic thing that I'm not aware of. But anyway, it's, it's obviously like a, a, a female Jesus story too. Mm. So uh, yeah. I mean, I think I went to college in Maine and it's set in Maine and Waterville, uh, was the town, and there was a lot of weird town gown relations. Um, the money wasn't trickling through to the people in the town, and mm. they kind of resented us a little bit, maybe justifiably. And then a lot of Maine is like that. You drive through, and there's these dead paper mills everywhere, and that was the industry and what's left. So I was thinking about that too. Yeah, and I remember when it came out too that people we're making the comparisons to Stephen King, but wanted to point out that it's not just because it takes place in Maine. Right. Um, but, but of course, you know, Maine is King country. So it makes sense that since you went to college there, that, that you would write something that takes place there, but I'm sure you, um, I'm sure it was daunting also to, to write a supernatural story out of the gate in, in uh, set in Maine, but you, you write what you know, right. Yeah, I mean, it actually worked against me. It didn't work in my favor. You know, I got, that was, that wasn't my best decision. I could have made it like 
Vermont. <laughs> no, but you, it's nothing. He just has New England and, and you can't send anything there. You can't. Right. Or it's like, this is about, you know, just buy Stephen King book instead. But no, I mean, the reason I said it there was because nobody writes, wants to write about home ex- specifically. It's too close. You know, it, it, I'm in my 40s now and I could write about home. But before then... You weren't you know, ready to do that, no. Yeah, those towns, like the missing... It's it's Corpus Christi, Maine, and it's not. It's it's Long Island. It's so clearly Long Island when you read it, but I just didn't want to say it was Long Island because <laughs> I wasn't ready. Gotcha. Well, you know, Rick Hotchula was, you know, wrote horror and he was from Maine and he said stuff in Maine too before and after King and he couldn't get away from it either. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, Everybody's like, he moved to Maine to do that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> there's other people right um so yeah so let's talk about that experience of winning the stoker three years in a row so um that um kind of validation from the horror community i'm sure uh really had to be like a powerful feeling um especially for someone who knew since four years old that she wanted to be a writer so um, can you go a little bit deeper into, you know, the, the feelings that you felt like going through that process of, of, of winning the award and, and getting that kind of recognition from the horror community? Um, I really, so the horror community is really supportive and they always have been, and it's been wonderful. And it's not just like this word community. It's just the individual people that I've gotten to know um, has been wonderful and it's not just winning an award. It's like being in a relationship with people who are supportive and kind and fellow writers and that I didn't think I would know my whole life. You know, you show up at a convention, mm-hmm. but I have like, since I was in my late twenties, the same people I've stayed friends with and they're my friends. And so more than the award, it's that the award has been great. Um, and I loved it. I, I'll tell you, like, with the third award, I was so glad to get it. But honestly, like, I couldn't go. I was home with a baby. And it's hard being a writer and having a family, um, I think, harder for women to do. So it meant so much to me. And I wanted so much to be able to, like, pop out something else, <laughs> for lack of a better expression, um, you know, the next thing but that was a time in my life when I couldn't. So that's, you know, but there's, those are my awards and I'm so proud of them. Yeah. Yeah. Behind me. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're beautiful. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's, I think one of the things that's great about, you know, this kind of recognition is that it's your peers that are, are saying, you know, good job. And, and uh you know, giving that kind of, kind of validation. It's great. Um, and the horror community in particular, I, I know, uh, gets kind of a bad rap from the mainstream public because they don't realize how much, uh, kind of heart, soul and, and good intention, um, uh, there is from, from the people who make it up. Right. And- oh, it's silly. It's the, the, the preconceptions people have about horror writers and horror fans. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, and uh, it's it's always been for me. It's always been a really great and supportive community. So I, you know, 
appreciate and I appreciate everything that HWA has done for horror writers in general. But uh, so Good Neighbors, uh, let's get into this book. Um, Was there there was a couple years between the last one and this one? Oh, God, it was a decade. It oh, okay. Was, <laughs> I yeah, didn't know it was how so long. It's right. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems like, to me, just from the outside, The Good Neighbors is, is one of those books that it really feels lived in. It feels well so well thought out, planned, and thought through. Um, it seems like this is a, a, an iceberg novel that we're just seeing kind of the tip of it. And by that, I mean is that on in between a lot of the chapters you have uh maps of the neighborhood and you have thought out who's in the neighborhood who's not in the neighborhood so i have a feeling that you did a lot of thinking about aspects that didn't actually make it into the final novel that you know a lot more about maple street than than we even saw on the page is that true i know more than anyone would ever want to know about (laughs) maple street like too much (laughs) well i think that comes across and it's one of the things that i think that makes the book good but um so um i guess maybe i skipped ahead a little bit let's talk about where the idea came from is this one that you've been thinking about for a long time or or did the idea come and then you just started rolling with it because i know some of my ideas i sit on for like a decade to 15 years before i write them um I I think the year after my second daughter Frances was born I worked on this book but I called it Empty Houses. Mm-hmm. Oh no, you know what? It was going to be my next book after Audrey's Door, but then HarperCollins rejected it. Um because Audrey's Door had sold so badly. And then I was like, I don't know where else to go because my agent was like, no one else is going to take you. Your sales are so low. We have to like make you a romance novel with a nom de plume now. Um, so I was like, no. <laughs> and uh, so I worked on this other book called The Clinic uh, for five years every day. And it was a horror novel. And then my agent at the time was like, um, I hate this so much that I'm not talking to you anymore. And, and I was like, no. So, so I had to find another agent, Stacia Decker, who was like, I know you're good, but I don't know that I could sell this. And I was like, no, it's great. Cause it's like, it's, it's insane. It's like, um, it's, who's the guy who did Star- Starship Troopers? Like what's That's his name? Paul Verhoeven. Paul Verhoeven. It's like, if he wrote a long novel, <laughs> bananas so um so uh that did not sell um and then I looked at all the rejections and what everyone had said about it and then I went back to this old book which was like I'd had a couple hundred pages of called empty houses and took all the notes and the notes were you know one we don't really like, we pretend we want horror and that we like horror as editors, but actually we're terrified of horror. We hate horror. It just has to pretend to be horror and not actually be horror. There can't ever be something supernatural. We hate it. 
you know, like they, just across the board, they don't like that. So, but that wasn't, I would have changed it anyway. Um, but initially empty houses was, uh, had like a monster and it was like this thing rising up and killing off the people on the block and sort of showing them for their hypocrisy. And truthfully, like that's, it's like low hanging fruit. And, um, I think, uh, I think I needed to write a good novel, like a really good novel to get out of writer jail. And so I just went through edit after edit with my editor or my agent, Stacia, and sort of learned how to write in a different way than I'd ever written before, which was like telling the story that I wanted to tell with a different kind of metaphor, which was the sinkhole, which was sort of much more like, was it passage to India, you know? where they're in the cave and what happened in the cave and you don't know what happened in the cave, but it's responsible. Like this kind of human terror of a boogeyman that doesn't exist is responsible for the death of this man in passage to India. And I was kind of thinking about that. So before we get real deep into good neighbors, you mentioned something that I think is really important lesson for, for all writers, but specifically for young writers, is, is let's talk about writer jail for a minute because it's really important point that most people would think, "Hey, I got three Brand Stoker awards, I've made it, you know, I've got it, I I shouldn't have to struggle." Um, but you know, I there are times where writers who have had massive amounts of success and or have visible amounts of success have to struggle with some other notions or other reasons why someone might not publish a thing and and for example like it it would be it i think most writers would think oh if i had three brand stoker awards i wouldn't have anything to worry about i'd just be able to publish whatever i want and so what you're saying is really interesting because um you know, it's, it, you, you, you were struggling to get this book out and it's really cool that it did. And, and it's interesting to, to look at how you try different things along that path. I don't, I don't know. I just, I don't know where my question is, but I just want to point out that that's a really important point that you made. Um, I think it's important to just know. And I think it's important to just take it because like everyone will always be in writer jail. Like you cannot have a career and not go through writer. Like you will, if you have a career, you will go through writer jail probably more than once because as soon as the sales go down and then the next book sales go down, you might have to work with another publisher. You might, there's, there's always going to, and you just have to be aware of that. And you just have to think that through and you have to decide like what should my my next next book be that is telling the story that I want to tell in the best way that I can and also addressing these very important market demands. And you have to think of that because if you want to be, to be part of the cultural conversation, that's the game. Right. And you know, you had this struggle for a little bit and you worked on one piece and then came out with this novel, which is great. And I think sometimes people might not realize that as hard as it was during that time, 
I'm sure a little bit of that struggle probably played into the the quality or the hard work that you put specifically in to Good Neighbors. And at least coming from my perspective as the reader who who thought this book was incredible and a five star <laughs> a five star book easily, um, I think now knowing I didn't know this when I read it, right? But now looking back on it, I can see where. Um, I can now kind of detect the determination in this book. You see what I'm saying? So, I, I can. I can. Like, it's like, I worked on that. I didn't mess around. And yeah. um, and one of the things that's great about Good Neighbors is it resists genre distinction in many ways because it could be defined in many, many different ways. But I think the main thing that I thought of when I read it was social satire, you know, um, and and that may i mean yes it's a horror novel yes it's it, in many ways it's dystopic in many ways it's cli-fi in many ways it's it's a lot of different things um but social satire is one of those things that i just you know is the easiest or, or horror social satire so when you set out to 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 write this book um obviously um i mean you were you had to be thinking about the market a little bit in, in this, um, what market were you thinking about when, when you started putting together Good Neighbors? I was thinking of, I knew that, so my problem has always been that the horror editors, the big ones, don't like my work um, because it's not, it's it eludes genre categorization, even when it is horror, you know, <laughs> like it's like, but it's not the horror we thought, or it's not, it doesn't, it's not doing what we what was anticipated. So I've never been able to get the attention of the big horror editors and it doesn't work for me to try. Um, so I, I was, I was like there, I can't try to get those guys. So yeah. what I need to do is, is to find people who like my first book, the keeper, I wouldn't have called that horror, honestly, but it is, it's just, it's, it's much more about, society and culture and, and gender relations and the use of power. Only I used the format of a horror of a ghost story to tell it. So again, that was, I couldn't have sold that to horror people. Nobody, no horror people could, you know, were like, what the hell is this? It was only like the literary, the pop, the, you know, the, 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 what is it? Upmarket. Mm -hmm whatever liked it. So, so I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about um, making sure there wasn't any supernatural in it, making sure that it would not be categorized as horror because I don't sell as horror. Um, but I do sell when they put a different label on it. And it's also like, I think legitimately, a lot of women readers don't like horror and it's because of the surprise rape that's always in them. You know, it's, it's the, you know, it's like the shocking, like, like th there's, there's a huge threat of misogyny in horror literature. Um, My wife is agreeing with you off, off camera. <laughs> yeah. So, so why would I want to be associated? I, it is horror, but I'm really happy not to be called horror so that the women who are my audience, who are like, 
a lot of moms like me dealing with good neighbors, with, with trying to raise a family and be a part of the world and having all the, these cultural ideas forced upon us. Like, that's my story. My story isn't that I'm trying to scare you. You know, it's not, you know, there's not a monster coming out of somewhere. And so if, if, if that categorization um, prevents an audience, I really want to read my book from reading it, then I don't want that categorization, despite loving horror. But I don't love the horror that's misogynistic, and so much of it is. Well, certainly, I understand that. And I guess here, what I would like to try and do is is make sure that the horror readers know that <laughs> this is a book that they want to read, and that, yeah. you know, that, um, that it's one that that, that they, they will enjoy. But let's get into some of the themes of, of this particular book. And one thing that's really interesting was um, I had wanted to read your work for a while. And when I read Good Neighbors, it was partially because it just happened to be at the library when I was checking out books and I recognized your name and I said, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start with Good Neighbors. And then I didn't know anything about it. I went in absolutely cold uh, to this book. And one of the things that's interesting is that I've never lived in the suburbs. So the suburbs is never experience I've had. I've lived in college towns and big cities. And so I will admit when I was maybe 20, 30 pages in, I thought to myself, well, I don't know if I'm going to get this or understand this as much as I want to, because I've never lived in the suburbs. However, um, that did not hurt my experience um, because I felt like I was learning something about the suburbs um, <laughs> <laughs> by reading it. Um, talk about, can you tell us a little bit about what commenting on the suburbs, was, was that an, was that itself a motivating factor in the story for you? Um, so I feel like the suburbs, the idyllic Americana suburb isn't really a suburb. It's representative of the American ideal. And it could be an apartment building. It could have been set anywhere. So just, just briefly, so people know, the story of Good Neighbors is um, near future. And uh, this family, the Wilds, who are from East New York, Brooklyn, which is not a great place to live. And they have really troubled pasts. The wife uh, is a beauty queen, but her mom, her stepmom pimped her out when she was growing up. And the husband, Arlo, is an ex-rock star who um, got addicted to heroin and is now off, but is sort of, um, his, his glory days are over. They have two kids and they are uneducated and kind of crass, but they're devoted to making their family work and to becoming better than what they had and giving their kids what better than what they had. And so they've saved up all this money and they buy the most rundown house on a cul-de-sac on Long Island of an upper middle-class town because they want to send their kids to the public schools that are good. And they want their kids to be exposed to these other kids and they want their kids to go to college. And it's just this pie in the sky American dream that they have. And what happens is the neighbors are completely suspicious and the neighbors are having problems of their own because this is near future America. Global warming has affected the country more and it's ruining inf infrastructure and people are worrying about their jobs. And so there's the sinkhole warning in the middle of the park 
that they're all kind of, they know something ominous is going to happen. Finally, it's going to pop and burst their protective bubble and infect their perfect idyllic suburban life too. Anyway, so the wilds come along, they're viewed with suspicion. And then the next door neighbor, Rhea Schroeder, who is the main other character, I, I don't know, she's an antagonist, I can say that, um, has befriended Gertie, uh, but they've had a falling out. And Rhea is the queen bee, and she immediately spreads horrible rumors about Gertie and tells people about Gertie's past that Gertie confided privately. And uh, so now the neighbors all know the backstory of the wilds and are appalled by them, just as the sinkhole opens. And uh, then a girl falls down the sinkhole on the block and people begin to wonder what happened and why it happened and why this girl was running. And they begin to blame the wild family for it. And they think that maybe the wilds were responsible and it becomes this um, eerie game of telephone where half the block has moved away because this, these fumes are coming up because of the sinkhole. And the people who stay, it's because they can't afford to or they've got an ax to grind. And they're waiting to see if Shelly is, or the girl who fell down the sinkhole is raised up. And in this time, more and more, their aggression and hostilities start to funnel towards the wilds. And they start to scapegoat them and things get violent. And so that's the story. Um, but in one of my favorite parts or a quote that I think kind of sums up a lot of what I understood to be suburban life was in the book, you have a part where you said, if your life isn't perfect, you keep your mouth shut and you don't talk about it until it's perfect. And then you brag, right? Um so are there Langan uh, neighbors who might, um, he might not want to read this book? Um, are there uh, neighbors of yours who maybe might find themselves in the pages of this? Or are they more from where you grew up in, in Long Island? Um, is this a current or a lifelong thing? <laughs> um, so growing up, like the town I grew up in was like that. And, uh, yeah, I would, I would say it's more about what I grew up with. Um, it was very much about appearances and it was because we were so homogenous, which I think is very bad for community to all be the same. Um, no one could be weird. No one could actually, and since everyone's weird, no one could be themselves. And it was just like an endless, everybody was wearing a mask, um, so, so it was that, but then I also, you know, when I moved to Los Angeles, we live in a community called Laurel Canyon and I've made a lot of good friends and there's a lot to like about it, but it is LA um, and appearances do matter. And the way that you talk matters and being a New Yorker, like I'm constantly having to hold myself back because I come off as aggressive because I'm so direct and like someone will say like, did you like that movie? And I'll be like, nah, I thought it was a turd. And like, everyone's like, mm. you know, <laughs> it's like, you can't talk like that. Um, so that was, there's these cultural rules that I really could relate to the wilds because I don't understand them and I don't wash my car ever. I don't really get why you're supposed to wash a car, but everyone in Los Angeles, especially my community, at least once a week. And I'm like, 
I don't know, but they have fancy cars. I drive a Honda, you know, but why do you wash your car? I don't get it. It's like, and you have to go and it takes like an hour or two hours, like you <laughs> drop it off. Like it doesn't, it's a long time in your life to, to spend on a car. So anyway, um, both, both, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. Now um, the sinkhole, one of the interesting things about the sinkhole is that you know, it's a, it's a buzzword thing. And speaking as somebody who wrote a novel that is uh, clear, is very intentionally cli-fi myself, um, that I, I was really excited when I saw those elements in the book. Now, it's not an overwhelming or uh, massive part of the story, but it's, it's really great how kind of subtle and um, perfect it's like kind of weaved into the story is is how the sinkhole seems like something that maybe right now it's something that might happen in florida or some one of the warmer states and the idea of this kind of thing happening in new york kind of adds kind of a social pressure to it what was your thinking in bringing this element into the story because i really really enjoyed that aspect of it because i i like that that and now knowing that you had originally kind of thought of it as a monster and kind of moved it more to, to this, it was, it was a really smart narrative choice. Thank you. Um, I, so I have a master's in environmental toxicology and I like, I studied global warming and uh, so it's on my mind all the time. And it's, it's so clear that that's the future and it's so clear it's a future we're not preparing for. And it's very clear that it's threatening to swallow our children. And like, you know, we're not all, all going to die. Like the Armageddon's not going to happen, but there's a problem and we're blind to it. And so I, I was thinking of that, but I think there's always something we're blind to. Like if it's not global warming, it's something else. So in some ways, global warming is the stand-in for this, this thing that uh, it, it's our obligation to come together on and and work to solve for ourselves and for our futures and for our children and uh, as humans we just tend to not like doing that yeah and and i really um appreciated the the temperature the slow temperature aspect of it like kind of ratcheting up the tension was kind of important and what we'll get into later is it's a really smart way of modernizing some of the themes that um, you're obviously paying homage to uh, with the Twilight Zone. And so I guess we might as well get into that. So something that really bothered me when I, um, it, it's very clear that you are paying tribute to with the name of the street being Maple Street. Um obviously paying tribute to the twilight zone episode the monsters are due on maple street and one of the things that's and and it's you put it into the um chapter breaks i believe in the book so i know it's there it's not it's not like you're trying to hide it right and um i appreciated this and what i thought was really cool about the climate change aspect is that it was a really smart way to modernize the issues that drove the monsters that are due on Maple Street, which was like the Cold War and communism um, and that classic episode of the Twilight Zone. So in order to kind of tell your suburban microcosm version of, of this, 
uh, kind of just really smart way to do that. So that is something that really impressed me on this. How funny was it to you that, because to me, I read 20 or so reviews of this book that no one mentioned the Twilight Zone uh, one time until I, until I did <laughs> that I could see. Um, my, heartbreak, my heartbreaking news for you is that like people who are 30 and under have never seen the Twilight Zone. I know, I know. They don't know. They're like, what? Oh, I don't know that, but I liked the book anyway. <laughs> right, right. They just, they don't know. They have no idea. I'm like, you should, you should watch it. And it's like, I'm an old person now. So you should watch it. It's good for you. Well, um, very specifically, I watched that episode in a film class where they talked, where they were talking about um, how to write social commentary. Right. So I thought maybe people were teaching that episode, but I guess that was when I was young. So <laughs> I wanted to get back to the Cli-Fi because I feel like um, I'm just, Absolutely. it's, it's not an exaggeration at all. Like, so since we've moved to Los Angeles, we've had to flee from fires every year. And last year was the worst. We had to leave for a week and then we had to tape mm-hmm wherever our doors were open and put eight, like air purifiers in when we came back because we couldn't stand living in a hotel during COVID. It was crazy, but that's global warming too. And then there was a sinkhole at the bottom of my block that came after I'd written the book and the road was cl- closed for six months while they had to do repairs on it. And it's like, oh, sh- crap is falling apart right now. And everyone's like, it just happened. It's random. And it's like, this is not random. I used to ice skate on Hubble's Pond every year when I was little. And now I, it hasn't frozen since I was 15. Right. Well, and look at what happened in Texas as well um, over, over the winter. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, well, you know, and it's, it's, hard for me because i had a specific my my cli-fi novel is a, is about wildfires it's, it's called ring of fire and and um i had a nervous situation with deadite my publisher because um jeff and i kept wondering um like is it um okay to look like i didn't want to look like i was saying i told you so <laughs> when all the wildfires are happening uh, in Australia, for example, and when they're happening here and happening in Portland. And so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's real stuff. So it makes your novel contemporary for sure. But people don't even remember, they don't remember Australia. They don't even, it's like, so, so heat makes viruses and everything else replicate more often. Like there's no, there's COVID wasn't, I just, I, I think there's a lot to blame on climate change. Like, so I think your fire, I think ring of fire, like people will be like, wait, was there a fire in Australia? Yeah, right, right. Are there fires yeah. in LA? Like they, oh gosh. And it's like, there is no Australia anymore. Did you not know that? <laughs> people are like, oh, I forgot. Cause it, it went past my Twitter stream too fast. Oh yeah. Yeah. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's totally true. Yeah. And, and it is sad about the young people that they, they don't realize these things, but um did you get any pushback from the editors on doing the um, the uh, very obvious homages to the Twilight Zone, or did, or did they not even catch it? No, they. I, I mean, uh, they hadn't seen it, you know. So I told them, and they were like, "That's cool," you know. 
but <laughs> yeah it's kind of neat well you know and it's a new york uh, uh you know as a new yorker like serling is uh i know he was from uh, from further upstate but it's a it's a new york tradition too i mean he was a new yorker transplanted to la and in many ways if you listen to interviews with him like he had that directness and that kind of played into like his persona who he was and this kind of stories he told um yeah it's uh well, you know, and I had said in my review of Good Neighbors that I thought that the sinkhole was as monstrous as any monster you could have come up with. I did not know that you had originally kind of worked on it originally as a monster. And um, so, you know, the the novel deals with a mob mentality of conformists, suburban life in, in, in a really cool way. And you modernized it with the, with the cli-fi issues um and that was that was really really cool but like couldn't we say that like honestly like that mob the suburban mob mentality is a monster in itself right like you feel like you're a target of a monster if you're living in it i i would assume like um maybe if somebody's like oh look sarah didn't wash her car again this week right <laughs> you know like and then you're suddenly like, you know, the target of, of judgmental eyes, right? And that's kind of the idea of, of the mob mentality as a monster. Um, uh, why hasn't the, I mean, I don't know, like there hasn't been as much suburban satire, I guess, uh, lately that has gone to the full level of horror. So I think it's really cool that you did that. Um, are we going to get more suburban horror? Uh, um i have another book that i'm working on called uh tentatively mom's night out and it's the same vein like it's it's clearly the same good neighbors continuation um yeah yeah awesome um my wife wanted to know if you're a fan of alice walker by the way um i love the color purple but i haven't read anything else Okay, so I think the reason why she wanted to know is because when you were talking about writing horror that's not classified as horror, but horror where um, that kind of confronts misogyny and all those kinds of things, I think that's, I think why she was asking, because I think she, when you were talking about uh, what horror means to you, I think she was thinking like, hey, um, she, she reminds me of, of, you were reminding her of Alice Walker in that sense too. I think there's a long history of women writing horror that's not classified as horror. Like Shirley Jackson and Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and Joyce Carol Oates and Margaret Atwood are all writing horror, but it's like, it's mainstream and it's, and it's, yeah. And I would, please, I, that is exactly the company I want to be in. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've heard a lot of comparisons to Shirley Jackson um, with your work in general. Um, I think um, what now I described uh, Sarah Pinborough wrote a book last year called dead to her that when I read it, one of the things I called or I said about it was that it was stealthily feminist. And what I liked about Good Neighbors is I th- felt like it was also stealthily feminist. You know, it's not, you're not going to see um, Riot Girls selling it at their info tables, right? <laughs> um, but there are so many um, 
ways that, you know, like this novel could not have been written by as much as I see like the Rod Serling influence and the, the Rod Serling type of commentary in it. Uh, this, this novel couldn't have been written by a man. Right. Um, it has a, a very, um, feminine touch to how it views the suburbs. And it's one of those things of when, for me as a, as a, a, a cisgendered male reading it, I, I was glad to get the window into not just the suburbs, but into uh, a perspective that wouldn't have been mine if I was living in the suburbs. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Thank you. I, the one thing is like, um, I don't think a man could have written it because also like, and I was scared. This is what I was scared about when we sent it out is me too was happening. I was completely in support of me too. And in essence, I'd written an anti me too book, you know, <laughs> like, and it's not that, but it's like, you could very easily read it and say, so there's a false accusation against a man for rape. That's the story. And it's like, oh my God. And it's a man's worst nightmare. And I kind of wanted to talk about that. And I wanted to talk about false accusations. And I wanted to talk about um, the tendency for people to attack. So, uh, so that was important to me. And I think, uh, I think if a guy tried to get away with that, it'd be like, uh, -uh. (laughs) you don't get to write that story this year. Right. Right. Well, and I think, um, I think one of the things too about the way Good Neighbors is structured, okay? So one of the things I really like about the writing of it is that you use you, you used the style of, you know, having the, the fake articles and the journal pieces and the different things that augmented the way the, the third person narrative goes. So what I really liked about it is that it set up kind of that Rochamon thing of where we're getting the viewpoint of the mob mentality, but we're also seeing the way history redefined this situation later. Right. Yeah. And we're also getting um, so much of the, we're getting some of the point of view of the mob. We're getting some of the point of view of the victims and then we're getting the historical aspects. So um, how you uh, divided up the narrative is, is, again, another really great narrative choice and something that I was really impressed with on the writing. So um, how, was that always a part of the process? Did you plan that from the outlining stages? And, and are, Well, I guess I should, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm assuming you're an outliner, a planner, because this seems so well planned. But nope. 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 Uh, nope. Okay. Not yeah, I'm a religious outliner. So I sometimes put that on people when I went out of, out of the <laughs> <laughs> no I totally get it but I can't like I I love the discovery as I write but then so the problem is then I, I'm an editor you know so I edit for like three times longer four times ten times longer than I spend writing something so was there a version of this book that was uh 100 to 200 pages longer oh yeah. oh yeah oh yeah okay yeah, with many more characters um I cut so many characters out of the story and, uh, and I kind of realized I wanted something tight. And, and so I actually, I think I just threw everything away and decided to write something really tight and had memorized the story at that point. So just, just typed it up and then knew that the articles and like the, the primary source stuff 
um, was what I was going to use to comment on the story I was telling. Because I think you could read that. And if you don't have any of the newspaper articles and stuff, you're kind of like, what is the significance of the story that the that, that Sarah Langan has chosen to to tell? Whereas I think once those articles are in there, you're kind of realizing I'm talking about social media and the ways that, you know, we're manipulated and the ways that we're, you know, we don't investigate stories and we believe everything we're told depending on what article we read. Mm-hmm. And some of the smart choices of that too is that um, when, when, when you read the articles and the kind of the, the outside of the narrative parts, you you also have to question how reliable uh, the sources of information you're getting because they sometimes contradict what you what you what you saw and and within the actual narrative. So I, I just thought that was really neat because it really um, kind of kept me a little off balance. And uh, there were several times where I had the um, and this is this is the greatest compliment I can give a writer. I had several of the uh, I saw what you did there. Uh, <laughs> moments uh with this book and um but what was really neat for me too is just you know like I said it's one of those I think I might have said this before we started recording but this is one of those books that I I really liked it while I was reading it I really enjoyed it when I closed it but when I started writing about the book and kind of trying to process my thoughts and feelings on it I I I realized I liked it even more because I I was catching levels of the book that I that I didn't catch initially. And one of those levels was how the articles manipulated me as a reader, as a person consuming the story and kind of like at some points pushed me in the right direction, sometimes in the wrong direction, but the right, the right direction that you wanted me to go in, right. As, as the storyteller and it's um, top notch storytelling. I was really impressed. So, um, but yeah, so can you tell me about um, getting into the voice of those? I mean, am I am I wrong that you were trying to to um, move us in certain directions? Oh yeah, yeah. I wanted to play with your expectations about what was going to happen, and then I wanted to play with your sympathy because, like, if you know something's true and you have um, feelings for uh, for a certain character, and then I come in and write an article that's lying about them you're pissed and you're going to keep reading to be like, is this, did somebody figure out that wasn't true? Or does everyone believe this lie about this character that I know is innocent or that I know like is a nice person. Um, So I was playing with that. And I think that's a real life thing. Like if we had an omniscient point of view, if we had a God's eye view about all the things that are happening in the world, I think we would have very different perspectives on, on politics, on, on, everything um so it's it's such a luxury to be able to make write a god's eye view of of a of a complex story and 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 hopefully i think that's really fun for a reader and satisfying to say like it could have gone this way maybe when there's some misunderstanding or something horrible that happened in my own life because so much of this book is about the ways that we as people react when we're triggered when something really upsets us because of something from our past and the mistakes that we make because of that, that we reproduce again and again and again. And I just wanted to write this book about that, about uh, what does it look like from the outside? What is, what's really happening? 
when we behave that way. And then maybe we have a new insight and maybe that feels good. All right. So I want to know how good neighbors and we're almost done. And I really appreciate your time, Sarah, because uh, I, I I just really love this book and I, and I love the insight into the process. I cannot sure. believe. I love that you're saying that you're like, and I have another compliment. I'm like, this is like the best interview. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> oh, well, no, I really, I really, 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 really cannot believe that you wrote this without an outline. Um, and, and, uh, I think <laughs> I see now what you're saying about, you probably wrote a much longer version and wheedled it down. Now it makes sense to me as a writer, but, um, because I could tell that there was, and I know I said this earlier, but I think there was so much of the iceberg under the water with this novel. And I say that in the, with, with the greatest uh, compliment that I can give, because I really believe that there's a lot for people to think on with this. And, and I hope that uh, good neighbors will see uh, translation into other media, because I think you could do really, really, really interesting things with this, especially in like a limited series format or something like that. Um, so, um, if you're listening to Hollywood, um, I, I think this, this, this novel has potential, um, for that, but the good neighbors, like, I'm wondering how a lot of times when you write a, a book that you feel really good about, it can change the whole direction of, of like how you feel about storytelling in the future. I, did you did you have any epiphany moments with good neighbors that maybe um, might be changing the path for your writing in the future? I don't know if that, does that make sense? I'm, I, I, I could see this as being a real like eye-opening experience to write is what I'm saying. Thank you. Um, yeah, it was. And, and thank you. I mean, I, that makes me feel so good. I like my book a lot too. And I, I, <laughs> you know, like, and it feels really good to have you say that because it was, it was sort of, um, I changed a lot emotionally since I wrote my last book. And, um, I don't think the stories that I tell were catching up with the person I'd become. And I think when I wrote good neighbors, I figured out how to be the different kind of writer that mirrored the different kind of person that I now am. And there were a lot of tools I had to learn. And it was about like, how do you write a thriller? How do you write human interactions in this specific way? And, and I did so much more studying of like, I just studied so many different things to write this story. You wouldn't, you know, it doesn't look like it, but I studied narcissism and I studied, you know, mob mentality and, and sort of Facebook and how things work. And, um, and it was fun. And um, yeah, I think, I think I'm just a different writer than I was. Yeah. Well, I can imagine your neighborhood growing up with face having Facebook the way it is now would be a totally different animal too. And how, <laughs> how the mob works and, and functions, but um, it seems like you covered, co- covered it with your imagination pretty well. <laughs> Um, so what's coming up next for, for, you mentioned the book you're working mom's night out or. Is yep. It- 
that's the next one. And then I'm also working on the adaptation of Good Neighbors for television. Awesome. So see, that's why you got a big smile on your face when I was talking about it. Because I think I can see how that would happen. Very I, think well. it, I think it would work that way. So I hope. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. In some ways it, it, it almost, it, it just makes, it makes really good sense that way. All right. So um, Sarah, I really appreciate your time and telling um, my listeners about good neighbors. It gives me a reason to, to really throw people at the book again and um, giving me some insight that, that too, that, uh, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, I got to get horror readers reading this, right? And one thing that I feel differently about after having this conversation is that um, I got to get, get my, my peeps in the suburbs to read this. Because, <laughs> uh, because I definitely uh, have people, uh, I know people that live in the suburbs, so I think uh, that they'll, they'll appreciate this one too. And that's, it's, it's always, um, and, and I like, um, I, and I do think that uh, the uh, stealth feminist horror is, is uh, something that we need to uh, be building up as a community and making sure that people are finding it. Um, uh, and not just by women named Sarah, but yes, you and Sarah Pembroke are both writing really good stuff. So um, uh, two of my favorites now uh, this in this last year that I read. Um, so Good Neighbors is a book that um, it, it's on hardcover from, and who's the publisher again? Um, Simon and Schuster. Simon and Schuster, yeah. And um I uh, I know it, it got it was on the new release shelves at, at the library where I pick up my books. So even in COVID times, they have like a shelf where they're like, "Hey, don't miss these," and they put it right by where people pick them up. And um, and they had uh, they had this on the shelf there, and that's how I originally found it. So um, I, and I just really appreciate uh, everyone coming spending some time listening. So, uh, Sarah, is there anything else that you want to add before we go? Um, uh, website, anything like that? Uh, where can people find you? Um, SarahLangan.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the usuals. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for um, for reading Good Neighbors. I love the interview. I hope you have a good Sunday. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, I... Uh, yeah, you make it easy when you have a really good book that has so many layers and things that I want to talk about. So, uh, Sarah, thank you for coming on Postcards from a Dying World. And uh, maybe when Mom night, Mom's Night Out is in the world, we'll have you back. I'd love um, to. Or uh, I got to dig deep into the catalog because um, I, I, I definitely remember that The Keeper was on my radar when it came out. And I, I feel real bad I didn't get to it because I remember... Uh, reading all the themes on uh, uh, that that were coming out of it, and um, and I remember because uh, I was living in Portland at the time, um, and I remember the um, the library in our neighborhood they they really pushed the keeper like hardcore. Um, it was mm-hmm. it was always out on the staff picks shelf. So and that says something because li- the Portland libraries are pretty serious. So um, Sarah, thank you for your time. And we'll talk again someday, okay? Yay, thank you.